0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. You know, um, it doesn't happen all the time, but oftentimes... When a preacher's about to preach, their week is a challenging week. <laughs> or you get a couple days of challenge. This week, uh, we've had a sick kid at, ho- at the house. That's been a challenge. Uh, but thank the Lord. Oh, and then we just got another sick kid. So stay away from me. Um, and then yesterday... We woke up to a freezer that had thawed out and uh, a refrigerator that was not refrigerating. So we had to do the quick run around to go get a refrigerator. Uh, all my life, we grew up going to the, uh, down to Kensington Avenue and going to, you know, they, they have they have refrigerators there on the sidewalk. They cleaned them up. They're nice. And we didn't do that yesterday. We probably should have. <laughs> we went to Lowe's and Lowe's gave us the run around. Anyways, so uh it's been a challenging week, and I think this is fitting. For me, it's not not just a week, it's been a season of not necessarily like ongoing bad things. But just a season where it just feels dry, where things are just dry. Do you ever go through those times in your life? There are times where you're just like, man, I feel refreshed. Man, I feel like energized. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to tackle life. And there are days where you're just like, do I have to get up? (laughs) Do, all right, I'm up, but do I have to brush my teeth? Okay, I, I'm up and I brush my teeth, but do I have to do my hair? You know what I mean? Do do I have to wear deodorant? <laughs> you get days or seasons in life where these things happen, and the not what what seems normal and good and easy on an on a on a good season becomes more difficult. And so, I've been in this dry season. And what I, what I have learned is uh, I was challenged long ago that when I have a certain emotion or when I have a certain season of life, you could pretty much read through the Psalms and find something where you could land on and, and meditate on that and find hope and let it lead you through that season. And for me, I'm in the midst of this, but Psalm 63 has been that. For me, so I just want to share with you some of the things that that have come up in this psalm that have helped me, or i 'm hoping that it will help me through this season even more got it so don 't get it twisted i 'm in this season of dryness i 'm not yet done, but I want to be real, and i don 't have it all together, so don 't look at me as like, "Oh, this dude has it all together." He knows what to do. No, I go to the Bible just like you should go to the Bible. And I lean on the Holy Spirit just like you and me should. So Psalm 63, the, the caption or the title of this psalm is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So today we're going to study this psalm and we're going to look at a strategy, not the strategy, but a strategy for the wilderness. Got it? So, what is the wilderness? A wilderness is an uninhabited place. A place where animals roam free. A place where animals rule. Wild animals where there are no domesticated animals. That is a wilderness. But a wilderness, as, as you, if you look through the Bible in different times in which people have entered into the wilderness, can also be a spiritual or an emotional place. The wilderness, an uninhabited place, a spiritual or emotional place. And I don't know about you and me, I'd rather not be in a place that is uninhabited. I'd rather be in a place where there are other people around. Got it? Why? Because there's power in numbers. There's the illusion of safety sometimes, because even being with people is dangerous, right? Right? Um, but there's a semblance of we're trying to do life. We're all trying to do life. We have this, uh, life thing somewhat figured out and we're trying to, to, to all of us do our jobs, trying to all of us help one another out by being kind and courteous. I'm talking, this is, this is like, like a unicorn in Philadelphia, right? Uh, the kind and courteous, uh, Everybody kind and courteous at the same time. Lord, I bless Philadelphia to be kind and courteous. Uh, A wilderness can also be a time or a state of displacement, of discomfort, of testing or trial. You enter into the wilderness for many reasons. It could be a, uh, a result of your disobedience You enter into wilderness season. It could be a result of someone sinning against you. You enter into the wilderness. It could be the Spirit leading you into the wilderness. Therefore, you enter into the wilderness. But here in this chapter of, of the Psalms, Psalm 63, it's not that God has led them, although He is sovereign over all things. It's human circumstances that lead up to David going into this wilderness. What are the circumstances that lead up to this? Well, first of all, we have we have the start. In 2 Samuel 13. Many of, of the commentaries or the scholars believe that Psalm 63 is written during the time when uh, David was fleeing from his own son. His son did uh, try to, to rule him or overrule him, usurp his authority. And take the kingdom for himself. But that is the last part of why he went into the, the wilderness. There's always a lead up too, right? And in most cases, in David's story, it's a sin issue or a passivity issue. So the first thing that happens is that there's a tragedy in the family. A brother is in love or in lust after his own half-sister and he devises a plan with, his, with the help of his buddy to get this girl, his, his half-sister in to take care of him so that he could then rape her. So that's the first scenario. There's a tragedy that happens. There's a victim of sexual abuse and the one who was the perpetrator was Amnon who was a son of David and the victim of the sexual abuse was Tamar the sister of this man named Absalom. But well, then when you get to 2 Samuel 13:21 through 22 you see that there's an issue of passivity. So you have Tragedy strikes, there's a sexual assault, there's a brother who wants justice and there's a father who's a king who should bring justice but doesn't. There are many people who thought that, that Amnon should have been forced to marry Tamar because the law required that if you rape someone then you took her as your wife. Think about that as a life sentence, right? Right? but there was nothing done. It only says that David heard of this and David was angry because because of the situation, but David wasn't moved to bring resolution to the circumstance. So that left Absalom, who was the older brother of Tamar, to step in and take care of the circumstance, but he's going to go about it his own way. He's going to bring about justice in his own eyes, his own way. The truth is, is that justice, true justice can't ever be brought when there is hatred and resentment in play. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 22, that Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So there was hatred. There was a a passive dad who was angry, who didn't do anything. And so then Absalom took his sister under his wings and said, don't worry, we got this. But he's not going to go about it in a righteous way. He's going to let resentment build up and he's going to let hatred build up to the point where he devises a plan to get rid of this brother. It's the time in the season where the sheep are sheared. And oftentimes there's a celebration that goes along with that. So Absalom thinks this is the perfect time. I'm going to bring all my father's sons to my house and invite them over and I'm going to tell my servants to get them drunk and when Amnon is drunk, take him out. They of course are going to be scared. So Absalom tells them, "Don't worry, it's me who's commanding you. You're not going to be in trouble in a sense." And so they went on with the plan. Amnon was was merry as the Bible says, he was drunk. And so they took him out, and then all the other brothers fled. So we have a tragedy that comes into play. We have passivity in circumstance. And we have another person building up in resentment and hatred to the point where there's vengeance stirring up in him. And he devises a plan to murder his his half-brother. And then he flees. That's not the end of the story. Eventually, he flees. When David is consoled about Amnon's death, then Joab, his, his general, decides to, to devise a plan to bring Absalom back. And so, the plan worked. David let uh, Absalom back, let him live in, in Jerusalem along with him. Eventually, the king said, you, can't, you can come, but you don't, don't come into my room. I cannot see your face. I don't want to see your face. And then eventually, he was allowed to come, and the, the king gave him his good grace and his kindness. But all the while, he was devising a plan. Again, this dude who's filled with vengeance, hatred uh, for his brother. He then goes on and starts to win the hearts of the people. Because when people have issues, they go to the king. So he was, the, he was like intercepting them as they were coming to the king. And he was like, oh, the king doesn't have anyone to address your issue from this particular land. Come to me. I'll deal with your circumstances. So as he was meeting people's needs, he was earning and gaining the favor, all the while turning people's hearts away from the king. So... Eventually, uh, about maybe five years passed, when he was doing this, he was slow going at it, it's kind of what you have to do when you are a creep and you want to get your own way, you, you inch your way in, you don't play your cards all at once, you do things gradually to earn people's trust or, or hide behind the radar to then do what you really desire to do. Right, So Absalom is is winning the hearts of the people. And eventually he's like, I need to go sacrifice in Hebron. I need to worship the Lord and fulfill a vow that I made to the Lord. And so David says, that's fine. You can go. And he had already said, when I come, start declaring in the streets, Absalom is king. And so there was a coup d'etat not really a violent one, but the people's hearts were won over to him where he had enough of a following that David and himself and his family had to preserve their lives. So there was a betrayal. And then what we see is the preservation. David's flees along with his household and along with his army. And this is the kind of state that he's in. In 2 Samuel fifteen thirty, it says, but David went up, the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. The context is important for us to understand the, the claims or the things that he is speaking or what he's able to do in Psalm 63, right? So, all of these things. The sin of passivity, the sin of a son who's betraying him, the, the, the preservation of life leads him into the wilderness. So all, I would say God is in this somehow, some way, but mostly it's that we see in the narrative the choices of the people that are involved in the story that leads to this wilderness experience. This is not a fun time for David. He goes weeping It breaks his heart that his own son, whom he has shown kindness to, is now betraying him and wanting to take over his kingdom. This is breaking his heart. Knowing this, I think, as the backdrop helps us understand just the fullness of this, what I'm calling a strategy for the wilderness, And I think this strategy applies to whether you're in the wilderness because of your own sin, whether you're in the wilderness because of some other person's sin, whether you're in the wilderness because the Lord has led you into the wilderness. I think the strategy uh, would help us. In whatever season you're in, and maybe tweak it a little bit here and there, but this is, I believe, a strategy that David puts forth. What do we learn from him? Let's read Psalm 63, and then I'm gonna give you five, uh, six strategies in, in this passage of scripture. Psalm 63 says, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will lift, I will sing for joy. And my soul, my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, the king will rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. thank you for your word Lord now as we go into the study of it excuse me will you meet us in the wilderness and will you prepare us the times in which we are in the wilderness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So a strategy for the wilderness, I have six of them. Verse one begins, "O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. The first strategy for the wilderness season is prioritize your relationship with God. I know this is like elementary. Prioritize your relationship with God. The reason I say this is because this is what he says. When he says, earnestly I seek you, another way to translate that is early I seek you. Or you are the first thing that I give my attention to. So in the wilderness, as I'm feeling uh, abandoned, as I'm feeling betrayed, as I'm feeling discomfort, as I'm feeling the trial, in the wilderness, I'm going to seek you first, is what David is saying. I seek for him first thing. And, And oftentimes, I think when we enter into these seasons of trial, discomfort, and testing, we know what we really seek after by instinct what does your mind go towards when you feel discomfort right away what actions do you take i know for me most of the time is i got to distract myself with facebook and this fancy game that i have here right er- early i seek you there was a season in my life where the first thing i would do in the morning was i'm like lord I want to eat your word, and those seasons come and go, <laughs> right, where, where our priorities shift and our, our things change. But the, the thrust here that David is leading us to is to seek the Lord first. We tend to seek for what meets our needs, for better or for worse. We seek for what has brought us the greatest amount of pleasure, for better or worse, That's what we tend to seek after. And what David is saying is, Lord, I'm seeking after you. And I'm telling you, if you've had a lifetime of habits of seeking after other things, it's not too late to right here in this moment, whether you're here or at home, turn your attention to the Lord and say from the depths of your heart, Lord, I seek you. And this is why David seeks after him. He says, he says this of his soul. He has this self-awareness about himself. He says, my soul thirsts for you and my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David seeks the Lord first because he understands that that is what his soul needs. That God is not just the God of the spirit, but he's also the God for the body. So he says, my soul thirsts for you and my flesh, it longs for you. This is both spiritual and physical. Your greatest and my greatest desire is not running after whatever the things we run after. Yours and my greatest desire is seeking after God. Because he is the one who quenches the thirst of the soul. Because he is the one who satisfies the longings of the flesh. We seek after God because he is our greatest reality. He's our greatest reality. The second strategy is this. In the wilderness, address your deepest desires. You have shallow desires, and you have deeper desires. Oftentimes, we give in to the shallow desires because those are more prevalent and more obvious to us, and we're prone to. The the shallow desire would be, I want to be distracted. So what do you do? Go to your phone. A shallow desire is, I really uh, desire... Uh, what do you call it? Serotonin or whatever the good stuff that flows from my brain. So I'm going to eat that nice sugary dessert uh, three times over, like right after the other. Or I'm going to uh, take this drug or I'm going to take this drink so I can numb myself and forget. I want distractions, right? Or, I'm going to go and lay with this person or that person because I want this this distraction. These are shallow desires. The Bible says, Paul says in in 1 Corinthians, that the body is made for the Lord. Your body and my body has been made for the Lord. So, what will satisfy you better? The Lord. Your deepest desire are not for food. Your deepest desire are not for a high. Your deepest desire is not more money. Your deepest desire is not a restoration of your possessions, an alleviation of your sufferings. It's not a restoration or a vengeance. It's not an apology that somebody owns you. It's not vindication. Those are shallow desires. Your deepest desire is for your thirst, to be quenched the thirst of your soul and that will only come from the Lord. This is what he says here. Now, how do we address our deepest desire? This is what I love about David here. He says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That dry and weary land is is descriptive of the kind of place, the uninhabited place that we talked about, Where there's no water, there's great need, and the land is parched. But what does he do? How do we address our deepest desire? Verse 2 says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name, I will lift up my hands. What does he do? He says, I looked upon you in the sanctuary. Is he there where the sanctuary is? No, he's in the wilderness. The tabernacle is in Jerusalem, but he's not. He's displaced. He's uncomfortable. He's under trial. He's under testing. But he says, I looked upon you in the sanctuary. These are, this is a looking of faith. This is a looking of remembrance. Why do I say that? It's because when he says, When I looked upon you, God's power and glory were visible. What does he see? He sees the glory of the Lord. He's reminded of the the power of the Lord. That's what he sees. He says, When I looked in verse 3, God's loving kindness was seen to be a better and pleasant reality. Though he was displaced, the loving kindness of the Lord and think about all the things that David had gone through with God for the, for the sake of God. He didn't become king without trial. He, he was first a shepherd that was promoted to a, a, a general of an army. How did he do that? By the power of the Lord. He came against Goliath in the name of the Lord. How did he do well as a shepherd? He fought the lions and the bears by the power of the spirit. David was a a spirit-filled man. He didn't get promoted just like that. He had to go through many trials and tribulations. And he remembers these things. And he says, God, thinking back, when I look at all this I'm looking at all this and I'm remembering how good you have been to me. How kind you have been to me. And this is something really good for David's heart. So he looks. What is the result of looking? When he looks, he says, because your love steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So there's praises that come about when he looks. Then he says in verse four, I will bless you as long as I live. There's blessing that comes forth as he looks upon the Lord. And then he says, and in your name, I will lift up my hands. I lift up my hands in honor of your name. Is this... Something, you have to be captured by God and so satisfied in God to have these responses in the wilderness. There, there has to be something that, that's greater. There has to be a, a tuning into something greater. And I believe it's the deepest desire. Addressing your deepest desires will will help you get through the wilderness with purpose. And you'll you'll get perspective. You'll get the objectivity that you need. You'll get everything that you need in the wilderness if you desire or if you you address your deepest desires, the deepest desires of the soul, the deepest longing of your flesh. Amen? Amen. Strategy number three, it's in verse five. In the wilderness, we can be certain that we will be satisfied, or you can be certain that you will be satisfied. Why do I say that? He says it in verse five. My soul will be satisfied. There's a confidence that as he, he longs and seeks after the Lord, that as he seeks the Lord, looks to the Lord, and his praises, and the blessing, and the lifting up of his hands to the Lord in the midst of the discomfort, the trial, and the testing. He says, I will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied. Then he goes on to give descriptive words here as to what this satisfaction looks like. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And he says, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. God is satisfying to the soul, or as satisfying to the soul, as fat and rich food satisfies hunger's. The question I think that you might have and I have oftentimes is, will this actually work? Will this work? Will looking to the Lord and and addressing my deepest desires and seeking after the Lord, will those things work? And David here says, absolutely yes. These things are working for me. He declares and he testifies, my soul will be satisfied. You can only have that confidence if you have history with it. How does he know? Because God has satisfied me before. How do you know? Because God has done it before. Because God has been in your life before. Because God has intervened before. Because God has comforted you. Because God has satisfied you before. You can know it because he has done this before. You and I can be confident that we will be satisfied. The fourth strategy for the wilderness, in the wilderness, we need to prime ourselves to praise. It's not just that God shows up and gives you reasons to praise, it's that you exercise your memories with God and that primes you. To prime something is to prepare something, right? When you go and you paint a wall that has been colored, you got to go and put a what on it? Primer. That is a preparation. When you go and get a, a weed whacker like I did several weeks ago for our church, uh, a gas-powered one, you got to push that little plastic bubble wide to what? To prime it so that when you pull it up, it's ready to, to suck in all the gas that it needs, in order for it to function as it should. Or you paint the wall and you prime it, you prepare it, so that when you put your actual color that you desire that will make the space shine and and be as brilliant as you want it to be, it is prepared for that. There won't be anything bleeding through, but it's prepared. So we need to prime ourselves to praise. I'll just, I'll just put this forward, i put this out there, that you and me praising is, is something contradictory or an oxymoron in the midst of the wilderness. It's not something that is instinctual, it's something that we have to be intentional about. So we prime ourselves to praise, how do you do that? How does David do it? He says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The dude is having sleepless nights, but what is he doing with those sleepless nights? He's remembering the Lord. He's meditating on the Lord in the watches of the night. You and I have been in wilderness situations in which sleep is fleeting, It's going. It's not easy to to enter into that REM sleep. You're you're awoken and you just have to make a decision of what you're going to do when you're awake. And he says, when I'm awake, I think upon you. I remember you upon my bed. I meditate upon you in the watches of the night. I shouldn't be awake, but when I am, I'm remembering you and I'm meditating on you. He's priming himself to praise. He's remembering. Remembering reminds us that the Lord has been our help, as we've talked about this already. And remembering reminds us that the Lord has been our protection and our place of rest. It's good to go back. I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, just forget your past. Just don't forget how good God has been in that past. Now, don't go and revisit every mistake that you've made and whatever and dwell on that, but just see all the grace that God had given you. See all the kindness that God gave you. See all the preservation that he has moved towards you and uh, that he has given you in your life. See, see all the joys that you've had. See all the, the laughter that you had. See all the, the gifts that God had given you. See his hand in every circumstance. Remember, and that will prime you to praise. That's how come he can say, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. What does he remember in verse seven? He remembers that God has been his help and that God has been his protection. When he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. To be in the shadow of the wings is to be in presence and to be under protection. That's what it looks like to be under the shadow of the wings of the Lord. Though he was displaced, though he is discomforted, though he's tested, though he's in trial, what does he feel? I'm in the shadow of your wings. I'm feeling your protection. I'm feeling your presence here, and that is all that matters. Prime yourself to praise, because praise is an overflow of satisfaction. When you have been hungry, you sit down for that meal, and you let that ah, that ah, that's a praise. That's that's something that comes out of you, right? That's something that, that, that's filled with thanksgiving, that's filled with joy, that's filled with man, I needed that. Amen? Amen. <sighs> hmm. Strategy number five. Remain close to God. He says in verse eight, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. To cling Is to remain close. To cling is to remain loyal. To cling is to remain affectionate. To cling, let me repeat those. Is to remain close. To cling is to remain loyal. And to cling is to remain affectionate. We do that in our relationships with our husbands, in our marriage relationships. Right? The word for cling is the same thing that that, that God writes when he says, uh, man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, or be cleaved, leaving and cleaving, like you're holding on. That cleaving looks like closeness. That cleaving looks like loyalty. And that cleaving looks like affection. And David says, my soul clings to you. I love love. If we just highlight, if you just highlight the the main points here that David writes, he says, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul, it thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, and then he says, my soul will be satisfied, and then he says, my soul clings to you. He's aware of his soul's desire and his need, and he's aware that remaining close to God is his only option. And not only his only option, but he is resolving to choose to keep it his only option, right? A lot of times, one of the dysfunctional the this, this traits of life, These, if you've grown up in a dysfunctional family, it's because one of these traits existed. You commit only as far as it's convenient for you. That's one, one, one dysfunction that we, we often see in, in many relationships as family breaks down, marriages break down, someone is committed as far as it's convenient. When the convenience factor goes, the commitment goes. And David says, that's not me, God. It is not convenient that I'm in the wilderness It's not convenient that I'm standing under trial and I'm standing under testing. I recognize that it's probably my passivity. It's probably my sin, definitely the sin of my son. I recognize that. But all those things do not threaten my commitment to you, God. I cling to you. My loyalty remains with you. My affection, I'm not going to grow, grow cold against you, God, but I'm going to let my heart be open and I'm going to give you all of my praise and I'm going to give you all of my thanks and I'm going to give you all of every ounce of glory that you deserve and worth that you deserve from my life. This is yours regardless of my circumstance. My soul clings to you. We remain so close, David writes. I'm so close that your hand could prop me up. Your right hand upholds me. I feel weak. This is a wilderness season. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling shaky at the knees. I don't have the strength that I need, but my soul is satisfied. My, My body is longing for you and waiting for you to... And I'm going to stay so close to you that you're going to uphold me. Your right hand upholds me. I have this phrase with my daughters as we go out in public. Just two words. Stay close. Why do I want them to stay close? Because I want them to stay close. If there is a present danger, imminent danger, I want to be able to just grab them and pull them out. Or bring them close. Or shield them and protect them my girls know this. When I say stay close, that means you're too far away. I can't either see you or I can't, I can't get my hands on you, right, for for your protection and your good and your preservation. So what does David say? I'm going to cling to you, God. I'm going to stay close to you so it's easy for you to prop me. And honestly, God can do that, whether you're distant from him or close. It's just like... Uh, Personification, got it? Uh, it's 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 helping us see with words the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us and the kinds of things that He can do on our behalf when we remain close. David says, "Your right hand upholds me." Point or strategy number six and our final strategy: in the wilderness, the Lord will deal with your enemies. The Lord will deal with your enemies. Whatever threatens, whatever is threatening you, whatever has displaced you, whatever has been bringing discomfort in your life, whatever is a source of the trial and the testing, rest assured that God will deal with it. God will deal with it. What is your place and my place in this? I like what he writes. He said... He says this of those who seek to destroy his life and those um, who lie. He says these two things. Those who want to destroy my life, their life will be handed over to the sword. And their place is in the depths of the earth. That means that their place is death. God is going to handle them. He will take care of that. And those who lie, their mouth will be stopped. Right? Those who are lying on you, don't be lying on me. Those who lie on you, those who seek to destroy you, those who seek to slander you, those who seek to create a difficult scenario or circumstance in your life, rest assured, God will deal with them. God will. And you don't have to have in your mind, I don't recommend you having in your mind what that looks like, like David did. (laughs) Because we all know, we all know that we deserve hell. We all know what we deserve, and Jesus said himself, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy, right? So you and I, we don't have to have in our minds what, the, what God dealing with our enemy looks like, right? We can, we can have in our minds what our en- what, how God will deal with our enemy who is not flesh and blood. Have that, his place. Your enemy, the devil, his place is underneath your feet. Romans 16, 19, the God of peace will crush him underneath your feet. That's his place. And his place is in the lake of fire. Amen? God will deal with him. And feel free to rejoice over that all you want. When it comes to an enemy who's coming against you, who's a person, know that God desires you to show mercy. It's, I don't recommend, and it's not Jesus' recommendation for you and for me to have in our minds how the Lord will deal with that. Crush them! The imprecatory psalms, right? Crush them, Lord! Ugh, kick them in the jaw, bust their teeth, Right? I think that was probably appropriate for David to write in that time when he was unsanctified and Jesus didn't come. <laughs> his way of showing his warrior like things. But there's a rightful, um, there's a good target for that, and that's Satan and his demons. Flesh and blood is not a good target for that. But you, you can rest assured that those who slander you, the Lord will deal with them. However, you and I need to be good with surrendering. Lord, I know you got this. I know you'll take care of this. Do it. My place is not a place of imagining what that looks like. My place is a place of rejoicing that you will. I'm gonna rejoice. The Lord will deal with what threatens your soul. The Lord will deal with what threatens your life. So I say this is a strategy a strategy for the wilderness it's not the strategy for the wilderness but i pray and hope that it helps you let me rehash this really quick summarize it david demonstrates for us that those who find find themselves in the wilderness can can and should prioritize their relationship with god can And should address their deepest desires, the deepest desires of the soul and your body, being certain that you will be satisfied. And in the wilderness, you can and you must prime yourself to praise the Lord by remembering and meditating on the Lord. And you can and you must stay close to God. And you must Find your place as a worshiper of the Lord while the Lord deals with your enemies. Amen? Lord, we ask that you would accomplish these things in our lives. I know for me this week, you gave me a sweet moment where there was satisfaction in my soul. Lord, I pray that we would have the same confidence that David had that we will look like David did. We bless you, O oh Lord, and we thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.